Welcome to UFO Think Tank Radio with your host, Alejandro Rojas. Hello, UFO fans. It's Alejandro Rojas, and I am so happy to be talking to you again. I get very giddy to be speaking to the thousands, tens of thousands of wonderful fans of UFO Think Tank out there. And I must say, I am very happy and uh, humbled by uh, your continued attention to the show. I, I do work hard, as you I'm sure can imagine, on uh, putting the show together and doing this for you on a weekly basis, and I'm so happy that many of you appreciate it and continue to come and join us every week with uh, the wonderful guests. Speaking of wonderful guests, there is a wonderful guest that I have this evening, and it's fact that it's someone I should have uh, on a regular basis. I kind of have, actually, uh, since we've become a good buddies. And that is the writer for the Huffington Post, Lee Spiegel. He, of course, is writing stories all the time, and I'm talking about those stories every week. He's pretty much the most prolific, uh, and he's really the only mainstream, mainstream uh, writer for uh, a paper out there, especially a big one like Huffington Post, which won what, the Pulitzer recently, or at least one of their writers did. So it's very exciting to uh, be part of that team and that, to be buddies with uh, Lee. And I can't remember the number. Maybe we'll ask him about it. Uh, something like a, a billion hits or some crazy huge number of hits that Weird News has gotten, which is uh, what he writes for. Yeah, unfortunate they use the term Weird News to put UFOs uh, in because they're not that weird. And in fact, the story I wrote isn't that weird. Uh, just uh, posted today. So uh, Lee Spiegel is going to be on the show. We're going to talk about a, a lot of the news going on. So I'll cover a little bit of news, but we talked uh, for quite some time in this interview. And uh, so we'll be able to catch up on a lot of the, the news that I don't get to at the beginning of the show during our UFO news section. You probably heard me mention just a minute ago that I had a Huffington Post put up today. Yes, and it's about science, UFOs, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. This title may seem familiar to you because that is also the subtitle to my conference, the Cosmic Exploration Conference. So that's mostly what this is about, that, you know, hey, SETI's out there, there's some cool dudes, and... uh they used to be seen as fringe before they really got out there and, you know, rolled up their shirt sleeves and started talking to scientists and got their program rolling. So people would take uh, the science of searching for extraterrestrial life and intelligent extraterrestrial life serious. So what I'm saying is we need this same sort of effort for UFOs and that there are scientists out there who are interested in this topic, and I can prove it because I am gathering a bunch of great scientists together for the Cosmic Exploration 
conference. We've got a ton of PhDs. I mean, we have a professor of psychology, Albert Harrison, and this is at UC Davis. He was also a member of SETI. I think I mentioned him last week. He's one of our latest speakers. And uh, so really excited about that. I just finalized, and the last speaker, which is John Peterson, and this is really exciting because he is actually the head and the founder of the Arlington Institute, which is a think tank that works with the military. He's a futurist, and he will tell us about the future of mankind. And and some of these ideas, he works on what he calls high-impact surprises and or, or wild cards. These are things that happen that we never could have imagined would have happened. And even though we're already talking about it, of course, the discovery of extraterrestrial life, what would that mean? What would that mean if an extraterrestrial civilization contacted us in an open manner? Uh, you know, and, and he thinks about this kind of stuff and talks about it with uh, government institutions. He worked for the National War College, with the Navy, with oh, with uh, he worked in the office of the Secretary of Defense, with the National Security Council at the White House. So uh, this is a very impressive individual, and we are very lucky to have him coming to the conference. And so we have some incredible, credible people at this conference, and I'm really excited about it. I told you last week how I was going to start a Kickstarter for it, and I have done that. The Kickstarter is for the video portion. So in other words, the conference is happening. It is rolling. The conference is, I've got all of these incredible speakers confirmed. Uh, hopefully you can make it to, to join us because this is going to be, I think, really special. I mean, it's a SETI-like conference, uh, but it's about space mysteries, uh, SETI, and all of these other, you know, the, the discovery of extraterrestrial life uh, with UFOs in the mix in a credible and serious scientific manner. So this Kickstarter, however, is to do videos because I want to videotape these lectures, and I want to put them on YouTube, I want to sell DVDs. I want to share these these incredible lectures and this event with everyone for from here to eternity. However, I don't have all the video equipment. Of course, as you know, I put on a lot of conferences and that I have uh, used other people's equipment. But and I have a little bit, but I need uh, some more. So that's what the Kickstarter is. People can pre-order some DVDs, sets of DVDs uh, of the conference. And if I get enough people on this Kickstarter. Uh, and we cover the the project goals, then I'll definitely be able to make the videos and everything will be wonderful. So uh, I want to, you know, thank the first backer I've gotten, Paul. And in fact, uh, you know, he had a good point or Pete, I'm sorry. And uh, Pete had a good point because he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to make a conference because I live abroad. And uh, so that's why I'd love to have some DVDs. Uh, but what happens if uh, you don't meet your goal? And the answer is, and I can't say for sure, but most likely I won't be able to make the DVDs then because I won't have the equipment. Now, uh, if I have a huge surge in attendance, uh, I could do that. But uh, 
I'm not sure. So uh, really, the Kickstarter guarantees that I can do the videos. Uh, if I can't, if I don't uh, get the funding through Kickstarter, then uh, most likely I won't be able to. But who knows? If uh, we have a whole bunch of uh, conference goers, then maybe I'll be able to do it even if the Kickstarter doesn't get funded. But how cool is that? Kickstarter is cool. You know, this crowdsourcing. You go there and they help you get funding or help you uh, get the word out for funding. So Kickstarter is a really cool thing. And, and you know, I figured, hey, it'll be kind of fun, uh, something different. Uh, a UFO, a cosmic Kickstarter. Who's had done that before? Uh, nobody, I don't think. So uh, decided to try it out. So that's the news on the conference. I really hope you can make it. Uh, ben McGee, who is in this new Chasing UFOs television show, he's a skeptic and the scientist will be speaking. He's a geoscientist and aerospace consultant. And his company, Astrorite Spaceflight uh, Consulting, is actually a sponsor for the conference. So how exciting is that? Super cool, if you ask me. So you can go to the Cosmic Exploration Conference website, Cosmic X. Dot com. You can go to my Facebook, UFO Think Tank. You could go to ufodailynews.com. Any of these sites are going to get you all of this information. They're going to get you to get the Kickstarter to the conference or wherever you want to go. So uh, I come visit me online, and thank you for all of those who do already. Uh, it's great. It's, it's fun to be part of this virtual community with wonderful people such as you. Now, getting into the news, because we got a long talk here with Lee, so I don't have a lot of time, but I just want to cover some of the big, couple of the big stories out there. First of all, and I first came across this from uh, Robbie Graham's site, Silver Screen Saucers. It's a great site. I love it. In fact, I've reposted some of his stories, and maybe I'll repost this one. Uh, by permission, Robbie's like, hey, you know, we're, we're buddies. He's a cool guy. Anyway, a few other people might have heard this show on Coast to Coast, where there's this guy who was part of the CIA. He's a 35-year veteran with the CIA. He wrote a book on Roswell, and according to him, quote, there was a craft from beyond this world that crashed at Roswell. The military picked up remains of not just the wreckage, but cadavers. Roswell happened, end quote. That's what this guy's saying, so... Uh, been in the CIA for a, a while, supposedly uh, had uh, worked with Bill Clinton. He was a briefer to Bill Clinton, supposedly. So pretty interesting. Of course, some people are saying, yeah, he writes a fiction book on Roswell and then comes out and say it, says this. Is he just trying to sell books? I don't know. The Cryptos Conundrum is the name of the book. But it sounds pretty interesting, and we'll be looking further into this. But you can see this. Of course, all the news I talk about at ufodailynews.com. If you don't see a story on it, just click on the UFO news feed on the top, and, and you'll see this, that story and many, many others. Another story here, uh, we're going to talk to Lee a lot about chasing UFOs and some of what they've been up to. But uh, I did want to mention uh, this study that the National Geographic did in conjunction with the release of the television show. And the study surveyed people to ask them, you believe in UFOs? 36% said yes, which is pretty consistent. 30 to 50% is usually what I quote. Because uh, typically these surveys uh, that are scientifically done, 
say that, you know, 30 to 50 percent of the people believe there's something to UFOs. That factors out to be 80 million Americans, according to National Geographic. So some really interesting numbers. And what's strange with these numbers? Okay, 48 said they're not 48 percent said they're not sure. Only 17 say, no, I don't believe in it. So the uh, true non-believer is a um, I know the term believer is kind of funny to People who, well, that's what it is. They are the minority, the vast minority, only 17%. What's weird, though, is that 79% say that they think the government is keeping UFO secrets, and 55% believe there are Men in Black-style agents. So like these guys in the Men in Black movie, of course. uh, uh, Lee wrote a great story on Men in Black at the Huffington Post because there is a history going back on, on this phenomenon. So people said how they would react if they met an alien. Two, 22% said they would befriend the aliens. And I think that's really nice of them, you know, like E.T. Or who knows, they may be furry and cute like Ewoks. Who doesn't want an Ewok as a buddy? I would love that, personally. Even a big guy, you know, like a, like a Chewbacca. You know, how, how fun would that be? Sit in his lap and watch TV. Fifteen percent said they would run away, scaredy cats. Thirteen percent would lock their doors, more scaredy cats. And only two percent would try to inflict bodily harm. So luckily it's only two percent of the people who would go grab a gun and start shooting. You know, that's typically not the best way to say hello. And even though I call those other scaredy cats, who's to say, I mean, if you're faced with a situation where you're conscious and you're seeing some strange creature out the door, you know, I might go click the lock. I like to think that I'd open the door and say, hey, what's up? Come on in. Let's uh, get a pizza. But uh, I may run away and crawl under my couch. My dog, however, is really brave. She would run out there and go check him out. She's just a little chihuahua, but she ain't afraid of nothing. If angry aliens did attack the Earth, 21% said they would call the Hulk to deal with it. 12% said Batman, 8% Spider-Man. The questions got kind of silly, as you can see. Finally, and this is making headlines, 65% thought that Barack Obama would be better suited than Mitt Romney to handle an alien invasion. And I can only guess that that is related to um, their policies on immigrants. So even illegal immigrants on this planet, uh, you know, I guess they presume if a president is more friendly towards that idea, they would be more friendly towards cosmic visitors who, of course, would be undocumented illegal immigrants. But uh, um People thought Barack Obama might be able to handle that better. Very interesting, though, that it's scientifically done. I mean, it's great when this happens because then we can confirm what we already know or establish what changes have gone on in the community. But 36 percent, I'm telling you, that's pretty good. That's over a third of the people out there, one of three people. And I know a lot of us get afraid. We think, oh, people just don't believe in this. They think you're crazy. No, there's a lot of people who do believe in this sort of thing. So 80 million Americans, there's a lot of people out there uh, that have an interest, even if they don't share it. C. 
Seattle uh, PI is a paper in Seattle that's been around for a long time, and uh, they talked about how the UFO frenzy was sparked here 65 years ago. And what they're referring to, of course, is the famous Arnold sighting back in June of 1947. However, they cover some other sightings, such as the Maury Island case, where some gentlemen saw allegedly saw a UFO, which dropped a six of them, donate-shaped donate aircraft, which supposedly dropped, dropped some molten metal, injuring his son and killing his dog. Uh, this has been a controversial subject for a while. And uh, these, an interesting aspect was that uh, allegedly these uh, pieces of metal were put into a B-25 plane, uh, collected by a couple military guys, and that the plane actually crashed that during transit. So, interesting story there. And then uh, another sighting they talk about on July 4th of 1947. So, all in the area, and that this Seattle PI covered way back then. So, interesting story. And finally, another great story. We've talked about this earlier, but NASA, uh, the Cassini probe, has found that there's probably a subsurface ocean on one of Saturn's moon. And of course, they have talked about this before. Um, but I guess, you know, every time they go by, they find more and more evidence that uh, there are large bodies of water on Titan is the name of the moon. So, very interesting. Could there be an underwater civilization? Who knows? All interesting questions. Questions we will ask the experts at the Cosmic Exploration Conference. But speaking of experts, let's get this gentleman I like to call Lee Spiegel on the phone. One of my favorite people is on the phone right now. Hello, Mr. Lee Spiegel. Well, he hello to you, one of my favorite people on the phone. <laughs> I almost called you Dr. Spiegel, and, and for the listeners, we've had this running joke because Dr. Spiegel will be speaking at the Cosmic Exploration Conference, and most of the speakers now are doctors, so I gave you an honorary doctorate. Oh, well, well, very nice. Well, and, y you know, every time... I hear somebody call me doctor, and it happens occasionally. <laughs> I always think of our mutual friend, Stanton Friedman. Oh, Nuclear yes. Physicist, okay, because people have been mistaking him for a doctor mm -hmm. because he's a scientist, he's a nuclear physicist, and he hates it when people refer to him as Dr. Friedman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's always correcting people. Yeah, well, he's a smart guy. He dresses like a doctor. Yeah, he kind of looks like the, the a medical doctor. He should have a jacket on, and you know, he looks <laughs> exactly. like the guy who's yeah. sticking the tongue depressor in your throat. And so yeah. I could see that he's sticking the tongue depressor in your throat, and he says, "Now, what did that UFO look like?" As you say, "Ah." Yeah. <laughs> the good thing—it's good that he's like that, though, because there are other people, and I won't mention names, because there's one person in particular in this field I can think of who doesn't correct that and is often referred to as a doctor, and he's not a doctor. And he won't correct it. Yeah, he won't correct it, and I've even seen him listed that way 
Uh, so it's good that, you know, Stanton's very careful about that. He's definitely a facts man. The truth and the facts are important to him. Well, I've, I've always admired him since since the very first time that we met for, for the first interview between us. And that goes back all the way back to 1975 when I met Stan. And, and, and I have to, to say, he's been so consistent over all these decades with, with his opinion, his stance on UFOs. Um, you just have to admire the guy for being mm-hmm. totally consistent with what he believes. Yeah. Well, I know you're a fan of his. And, yeah. Uh, so am I. And, you know, it was really neat. One of, I, I don't know if I even told you this yet, but MUFON asked me to do PR for them. So I'm I'm the director of PR for MUFON International yet again. Well, uh, well, you, you're the man for the job. But when I used to do it before, at one of the symposiums, I wrote a press release. And I got a call from the local, uh, I think it was the local CBS affiliate. Oh, it was ABC. And he's like, can I get an interview with Stanton Friedman? And I said, sure. You know, And Stanton's really good at giving interviews. So yeah. he's like, okay, uh, you know, I'd like to be out there at this time. Um, do you think you can arrange that? And I said, yeah, I'm sure I can. He's like, are you sure? Do you think I'm really going to be able to talk to Stanton Friedman? <laughs> And, I mean, this was a reporter, and he was so excited to be able to talk to Stanton Friedman. And we arranged it, and he did, you know, uh, this was some time ago where, you know, I think now we get a lot more serious coverage, but uh, there wasn't as much then. And he, this guy was there all weekend covering the conference. In fact, if you go to the MUFON YouTube, you can still see uh, some of these videos. Uh, he was just uh, so excited, and he was a great reporter, and he did a great job with these pieces. But that was one of the funniest things I've ever saw. Well, yeah, and and it, it's great to, to to be able to say that about Stan, and I'm I'm happy to be calling to call him a friend, mm-hmm. um, just just because he's been doing this for so long, and um, you know, uh, I I hope he lasts forever. <laughs> All right, so I want to also get into all of these great stories that you're writing on a regular basis for the Huffington Post. And I guess the latest couple of stories in the last couple of days have been around this television show called Chasing UFOs. Yeah, well, they've been getting a lot of publicity uh, over, um, over the last week or so. And you know, it, it's totally understandable. I mean, the uh, National Geographic really wants to to get the word out about how they're putting an eight-part series together uh, on UFOs and that they're going to um, get involved with UFO investigations as, as much as they can. And, and I think that, that's a good thing. And uh, I think they missed the mark a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, just, it's just my point of view because there, there's a lot. The way the show is is created and produced, it's very much like I think, much like a, another show out there called Finding Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the same production company did both shows. Uh, Finding Bigfoot was for Animal Planet, and the Chasing UFOs is for National Geographic. And I, I kind of wish that. National Geographic had at least decided uh, 
to go in a different direction because there are things about the individual episodes that I've seen so far that don't really come across as completely credible. Again, it's just my opinion. I, I don't think that the investigators have to be almost whispering out there in the dark as they're looking at strange lights in the sky. I mean, why, why, why are they whispering? Finding Bigfoot whispers look okay, because if there really is a Bigfoot out there in the forest, you don't want to spook them. Uh, but uh, are the chasing UFOs people afraid of spooking any nearby aliens? Well, I doubt that. Yeah, that is really funny you say that, because uh, when we went um, skywatching with them, Jason and I, and they were filming the show, they told us to use our night voice, that they use a night voice. And we kind of looked at each other, and, and as soon as uh, they left, you know, Jason goes to me, why, why are they, do they want to whisper at night? Is, are they afraid they're going to scare away the UFOs? And so he was joking about that. Uh, it, well, to this day, he jokes about it, which is pretty funny. So, yeah, I was kind of wondering about that. And we actually used our regular voice because, you know, I, I just, you know, you know, we're all very used to going out on these night sky watches. And that's one thing you don't have to worry about whispering when you're looking for UFOs. Yeah. I, I, I like the three team members, uh, Aaron Ryder, James Fox and Ben McGee. They're very nice people. They're very smart people. <clears throat> but so far, from what I've seen, uh, Ben McGee is a scientist. He, mm -hmm. He's a radiation specialist. Uh, he's an archaeologist. Uh, he's a geologist. He's very well respected. But he doesn't come across entirely on the show as the kind of scientist who's really serious. He's supposed to be the skeptic of the group. and But he's coming across more as an open-minded skeptic who thinks that skepticism is good as a way of reaching the public, like a public outreach. Well, that's fine, too. In other words, he, he's not a debunker, and, and he's very clear about that. Yeah. It's funny you say that, because when you talk about finding Bigfoot, they kind of have a character that's the same, and it's kind of like a token skeptic as opposed to, I think it would be kind of cool if the skeptic, you know, was in charge, this was the guy oh. where it's like, you got to, you know, he sets the, the high level of, of, you know, investigation that we got to do. Whereas yeah. even being out with him, you could tell Ben was kind of, he, he had input, but he wasn't the guy in charge. Right. And, and looking at the, the episode, I didn't get the impression that he was as skeptical as he should have been. Oh, really? Yeah. Because, um, if, if this is going to be a, a series that ultimately tries to find some piece of dramatic evidence that pretty much opens up the Pandora's box of UFOs or the, the possibility that Earth is being visited by someone from somewhere else, then you've got to really dig deep. Mm -hmm. uh, and running around through alleys and, and going out into fields at night with night vision equipment and metal detectors, I don't think is is the way to do that. Like, like for example, when I was, I, and I don't mind talking about this now, when, when I was interviewing all three team members, Aaron, James, and, and Ben, and I asked each of them, I said, so far, the first episodes that you have filmed, what has been the most eye-opening experience for you? And they all agreed individually that 
something that was found out at the debris field near Roswell, New Mexico, hmm. was very important and, and that could point to military involvement with what supposedly happened at Roswell in 1947. Something came out of the sky and crashed. And as you know, and as most of your listeners know, Alejandro, it's still debated what it was that fell or crashed in that field in 1947. Everything from alien spaceship to weather balloon to Project Mogul, a top secret um, military uh, project that was supposedly built to spy on, on the Soviet Union. Well, whatever it was, that fell in that field not far from the Roswell Air Base, as soon as word reached the military that something came out of the sky, well, of course, they're going to send people out there, military people, to see what it is, Mm -hmm. to pick up whatever it was, to bring it to the air base, to analyze it, because that's what they do. That's what they did. Mm -hmm. So... Using metal detectors, the team, the chasing UFOs team, went out there, and they found something. And even on the National Geographic website, they have a picture of it. Mm -hmm. So even National Geographic has not been trying to hide what this thing was that they found out there. And I'll tell you what it was. It was a button, a, a button off of what appears to be a military jacket or lapel or uniform, and it could have been from 1947 and small enough, but the metal detectors picked it up and there's this button. And, and everybody was saying that this, this pretty much proves or could prove that the military was out there. And my point of view was, and I mentioned this in my story, well, no one's ever really disputed that the military went out there. Right. Because something came out of the sky. Right. Okay. Uh, but does it prove that does the button itself prove that a UFO crash landed there? No. Right. No. Even it's, in all of the explanations the Air Force has given, uh, such as the mogul balloons or the crash chest uh, and all of this, they these were military exercises. They're not saying there wasn't a military involvement with the Roswell crash. That's just right. What the crash? So yeah, that has never been in question. Right. So, so if, if you go out there with a metal detector and you find a button that looks like it came from a uniform, well, okay, um, that, that, it doesn't even really prove to me that it came from, uh, from someone who was at Roswell in 1947. But, let, but let's say that it was. Let's say that this is a button from a military uniform from, that fell off of a guy's lapel while he was out there cleaning up the area um, of all the mess that landed in that debris field. Fine. But it doesn't prove anything. Yeah. You know, and and I don't like getting excited about something that's not really worth getting excited about. Yeah. We already know that the military was involved. Give us something more. That's the kind of attitude I have. You know, we should all have this attitude. Skeptics, believers, people in between skepticism and believability. We, we should all demand more. Now, mm-hmm. the government doesn't seem to be wanting to give up whatever they may have. 
other governments don't seem to be either. So it's it's like what Carl Sagan, the late astronomer Carl Sagan, used to say that that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think he was right. I think that there's evidence out there. I don't know who has it, but I think that there's enough evidence where somebody ought to be giving it out. They should be sending pieces of a of an alien or a ship either to you or to me, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so, that, so that we can break the story. Well, uh, and it's, you know, it's too bad they weren't talking more about, because I've had Frank, Kim- well, I broke the story on Frank Kimbler and the guy who found this metal out there. He, he works at the um, military, New Mexico Military Institute out there yeah. and uh geologist. And I know that they talked with Frank Kimbler, and I hope that uh, they were supposed to do another analysis on the metal that he found. And I know they have. I know he's on the show on that episode. So uh, hopefully that's when I saw the button. I I felt the exact same way you did. I didn't feel that was uh, that compelling. But of course, typically I know that they won't put out their most compelling piece. Uh, you know, you don't want to give it all away. So hopefully, there's something. Uh, there is some more compelling evidence that they they have on the show. Well, what what was the initial analysis on on Kimbler's piece? The initial analysis that he got back from a reputable lab, it was a um, isotopic ratio study, and uh, the study showed that most likely this material was not fabricated on planet Earth, and it's aluminum. It's something that was fabricated, but at least with this study. Now, it was on the far margin of error that it could have been possibly error, but his argument is that this lab doesn't make error. I mean, this lab is is reputable enough where that would be uh, highly unlikely that that would be the case. And his whole point is he needs another lab to do another study. That what he's got so far is compelling, but he needs more study, and that's been a difficulty because there's not necessarily a whole bunch of labs that can do this study. This study is as uh, costs some money. So yeah. I need to catch up with him because uh, I know that you know they spoke with him. I talked to Frank uh, prior to him. Uh, well. While he was organizing, you know, the filming with uh, the crew, and he said that's what they were going to do. So uh, I would, and I could, I'm sure they would want to hold that uh, information, you know, close to the vest. So, uh, well, it, you know, I'm you hopeful. It, it, uh, go ahead. Oh, just that. I'm just hopeful. Well, and I am too. And, you know, I keep telling people, I keep trying to remind people that there, there is this Area 51 exhibit in Las Vegas um, that uh, I went out to a few months ago for the opening of it. It's, it's in a museum that's part of the Smithsonian Institution. Yeah. And in this exhibit, there is a display. And the the headline on the display for all to see says authentic alien artifact. Well, that's going to make people kind of wonder, well, what, what is this? What do you, what do you mean authentic alien artifact? And they're actually showing something on display there 
that people claim that is an alien artifact. But now mm-hmm. what does that mean? Why is this on display in a national museum? Why aren't people making more of a big deal about this, right. considering what the material is? Um, so I think that's more interesting, actually, than a button off of a lapel of a military uniform in the Roswell debris field. Right. If somebody's saying to me, we're going to present an authentic alien artifact, well, hey, hold the horses, hold the presses. What's this? You know, show yeah. us some evidence. What's this evidence? Why is this an alien artifact? What are the properties of it? And and they claim that radar can't be reflected from this material. That from the button? That, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's funny because well, that, that would be Self an amazing button. button. <laughs> now that's some button. <laughs> yeah. Now you're talking. <laughs> that's right. It's like it's like uh, it's like a Harry Potter cloaking device. You're right. <laughs> um. No, this is the material that's at the museum in Las Vegas that was donated right. to the museum by uh, newspaper journal, newspaper, uh, television newsman George Knapp, who's an amazing reporter. He's the man who pretty much put the word Area 51 on the map. Nobody knew about Area 51 until he did the, all the initial reporting of it years mm-hmm. ago. George Knapp has won 19 Emmy Awards for his reporting on a variety of things in and around Las Vegas. And he went to Russia and was given this material that was the result of what they called the Russian Roswell. A, U- a UFO came out of the sky. It crashed. Scientists went in, picked up a lot of materials, and Knapp got onto it. He went there. He was the only American journalist allowed to go there. They gave him the materials. He brought the stuff back to America for analysis. And he has donated this material to the museum it's the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas. And and there are these very tiny, perfectly spherical like beads that are part of the material. Hmm. And according to initial analysis uh, from different institutes, they're saying that in these beads, the distance between the atoms of these beads is different from ordinary iron. Hmm. Like I said, radar can't be reflected from the material. Some of the elements in the material can disappear and new ones appear after they're heated. One of the pieces actually disappeared completely in front of four eyewitnesses. Really? In Russia and, or or here? Uh, no, well, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe the wow. story is from one of the Russian institutes. And, and the part of the description that I like the most is it says that the core of the material is composed of a substance that has anti-gravitational properties. Hello, no button can claim that. Mm-hmm. So all of this information is in the display case with the material at the museum in Las Vegas for all to see. Wow. And, and, and in fact, when I was there going through the museum and, and I was given a, a walkthrough by the museum director, Alan Palmer, and I asked him if I could take some pictures while I was there. And he said, yes. And I took pictures of this material that I was just talking to you about. I took a picture of the display sign that actually says authentic alien artifact. And, and a few minutes later, his museum curator came rushing up to me and said, you can't take any more photographs. You can't take any pictures here. And I said, well, why not? 
she said, because the press is not being allowed to take any still photos or, or video uh, um, material. Um, and I said, well, well, how are you going to get the public interested to come to the museum unless you at least tease them with something? She said, well, we think that the mystique of the material itself, if people like you write about it, should be enough. Well, and then she walked away, and I, I asked the museum director. I said, I don't, I don't want to get anybody into any trouble, but, you know, I, I think people should be able to see this before they come in and spend money and, uh, and see this stuff. And he told me to use the pictures. Hmm. And, and so my picture that I used at, at the top of one of my stories for Huffington Post about this display, mine is the only picture that was ever taken and shown publicly. And, I, I'm, and I'm not saying that just to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying I think the stuff, whatever it is, should be shown. Right. Why, why are we keeping stuff secret? Mm-hmm. If you've got something that's interesting, let's see it. Yeah. That, that was always my gripe about all these UFO groups growing up when I was a kid. And everybody was fighting against each other. Oh, we're not going to share our information with you. Because we've got better stuff than you, and we've got better materials and better pictures. Well, no, that's not the way it ought to be. This is something that affects the entire planet and everybody on it. So let's kind of right. let's be like a big family and share the stuff. That's just my opinion. No, I agree with you. That's one of the things where I've always liked about MUFON. MUFON's very open that way. People yeah. accuse them of being otherwise. But in my experience, that's just not true. Yeah. Whatever you want access to, even if it's, uh, it might not be on the Internet yet, but most of it is, it, they'll help you get access to it. So, I mean, uh, I agree with that 100% because there are still organizations out there who aren't sharing everything. Although I, I will say this about MUFON, and, and I've discovered this, and, and maybe this is a good thing, I'm not sure, but certain stories that I've wanted to follow up on and write about for Huffington Post, which stories which were kind of in the hands of, of MUFON investigators, I found that by and large, I guess there must be some overall policy that MUFON has with all of its investigators and field researchers, is that while they're in the middle of an investigation or unless it's been closed, uh, they they won't give out much information about it. They're very close. Yeah, they're very closed-lipped about a lot of their stuff, and that can be frustrating. Uh, I mean, I, even if I'm not asking for the names of people who are eyewitnesses, I just want information about the overall case because I think it's important enough to share. Mm-hmm. Even if you're in the middle of an investigation and you say, well, we can't release the information. Well, why not? Why not release information to let the public know that you're working on something that's potentially really interesting? It may turn out to be nothing. But but don't give us the impression that you're you're holding back and and this is all yours because that that's always been my complaint about most UFO groups. Yeah, the issue is that they don't know though they don't know if it's something big and most likely they're not and so you know on the flip side it's like well I could give you something and then it turns out to be nothing and then we both kind of look silly but uh, hey. I know that can be the issue, but now you've got yeah. a connection with a guy on the inside, so. <laughs> well, I hope so, because I want to keep you as a friend. <laughs> so, uh, in relation to the show, uh, getting back to the to the chasing UFOs, 
Yeah. You also wrote about their effort to send a response to the wow signal. Yeah. So what is uh, the wow signal, and uh, how are they responding? Well, uh, the, the wow signal, is it, it's very interesting, because I actually remember when this happened. Uh, well, this is going to date me. This is how old I am. Uh, in, uh, in 1977, uh, as part of the overall search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or people know it as SETI, at Ohio State University, they were using what's called the Big Ear Radio Observatory. And th- this observatory was just kind of monitoring signals that as, as the Earth was, was rotating in, in, in its orbit, the observatory was just listening for signals from wherever the Earth was facing at that point. And at one point, while Earth was kind of looking in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius, um, a very strong 72-second radio signal or a spike came from that direction. And uh, one of the astronomers who was on duty at the time, uh, Jerry Eman, I believe his name is, or Eman, E-H-M-A-N, he, he was the first person to notice this unusual spike. And when I say a spike, on the computer printout, it was basically, it was six letters and numbers that appeared on the computer printout. And he looked at this, and he, he pulled the sheet out of the computer, and it was so completely different from anything else that was coming in from outer space and he took a red pen, and in the margin of the computer printout, he wrote the word, wow, with an exclamation point, so that he would know, you know where this came from. And, and it's been debated ever since. We're coming up on the 35th anniversary of the wow signal, and scientists have been debating whether or not this was, in fact, the first extraterrestrial signal to reach planet Earth. But part of the problem with that is, and this is what science will tell you, is when you're trying to look at something and study something scientifically, you really want something to repeat so that you can really study it. This never repeated. Mm-hmm. It, never, it, it, it was never heard from again. It's never reappeared. So, but the debate has always continued about that. So when National Geographic was putting together the Chasing UFO series, they came up with the idea of, of let's send a reply back to the Sagittarius constellation because if SETI wasn't going to send a reply if they didn't think that it was important enough because they couldn't repeat the original signal and they were just going to let the signal just kind of hang there, then let's do it. And let's use, they say, let's use modern technology. Let's do it as a giant global social experiment using Twitter. So National Geographic decided that in, in combination with the, uh, the premiere of their show, Chasing UFOs, they solicited basically people all around the world to send tweets. So they were putting all these tweets together, and on August 15th, which is the actual 35th anniversary of the original WOW signal arriving on Earth, um, the Arecibo Observatory Radio Telescope, Radio Observational Telescope in Puerto Rico is going to be used to transmit all of the tweets that have been gathered by people on Earth, and they're going to just send the signal back to Sagittarius. Uh, and they've been getting a lot of different tweets from a lot of people 
I, I would say more than 50% of the tweets are just people just joking around. Uh, no, a lot of people aren't taking it seriously, but, but they like the idea that, that their message can be beamed into space. And, and again, what a lot of people don't realize is, and I'm not sure of the exact numbers of this, but I believe it's something like in order to get the signal from here to that area of space may take something in, in the range of 200 years wow. to, get, to get there. And then if the aliens are still there, if, if they were aliens and if they haven't destroyed themselves and if they want to reply back to us, that could take another 200 years. So everybody who's been tweeting to get a message into space, they're all going to be dead and gone <laughs> by, by the time the signal even gets there. I mean, that's part of the reality of this. Right. So, so I, I like to say to people, well, wouldn't it be nice if we send a signal and somebody intercepts it and maybe they're like on Mars and Jupiter. They're not that <laughs> far away. <laughs> right. Maybe they were in the first place. Right. That's, that's right. <laughs> so it could have been an SOS right before some spaceship was plowing into an asteroid or something. Yeah. Um, and, and the people at National Geographic told me that, this, that the whole idea of putting this transmission together to reply to a possible alien signal, they, they basically said that uh, it was to help spark participation and for viewership in their new show, Chasing UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they basically said that at the heart of the, of the show, it tries to embrace the curiosity that there might be life and intelligence elsewhere. Because certainly a lot of people don't think that there's any intelligence here on Earth. <laughs> you know? Right. We, in fact, a lot of the tweets that were, were that were gathered for the transmission basically were saying like, "Hey, alien creatures, don't bother coming here. We're not a friendly group of people, but you don't want to deal with us at all." So, did you send a, a, a message? I did actually. I, I I did, and and I basically <laughs> what I basically said to our friends from outer space was, uh, I said, "Look." Uh, here I am, I'm Lee Spiegel. Uh, I've been one of your biggest PR representatives on this planet for the past 30 years or so. <laughs> I believe you owe it to me to give me the first exclusive interview with you. <laughs> that was basically my message. Yeah, I, I, I sent when I invited him to the conference. And uh, <laughs> it wasn't just a, a marketing thing. It was I would really like him to come. Well, well, yeah, but now will they have to pay their own way? Yeah, I mean nobody <laughs> gets in free. It's Vegas, we, so so we can't. Can you arrange for them to have a suite? Yeah, I could do that. <laughs> okay, I I mean I'm sure uh, a lot of those uh, promoters out there will want them to do a show. Well, yeah, it's it's like we do we really need like an alien Cirque du Soleil show now in Vegas? Mm-hmm. Of course, this makes me think of Mars Attacks. Oh, oh yes, which took place in Vegas. I know. Right. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, I I loved that movie. I because I, I'm one of the few people who actually really liked that movie. Oh, me because, too. Oh, did you? Oh, I'm so glad to hear I'm that. I'm a Tim Burton fan, uh, yeah. Yeah. mostly, and then and on top of it with all those great actors. Yeah, I liked oh. it. Oh, and watching it was these, silly, but... these aliens coming in and destroying Las Vegas. Oh my God. So uh, I know you also then reviewed some of those messages. Did you have some favorites? Um, I I did. We uh, some of the ones um, 
Let's see one one person. I mean, I've got a couple of them written here. I'll just I'll just read you what a couple of the interesting ones were. One one said, uh, "You have mastered intergalactic travel and communications. We created Snooky, and we fight over liquefied dinosaur remains. You win." <laughs> Another one, you'd have to expect this one, just basically says, beam me up, Scotty. Well, okay. Another yeah, one says, there's probably a ton of those. Yeah, there's another one. Not original. Uh, and that was yeah. like an actor or something. Uh, well, that's right. Well, you know, Scotty, uh, well, and, and it's funny because uh, I think part of the legend of that phrase was that Captain James T. Kirk of Star Trek never actually said the phrase, beam me up, Scotty. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yep. It was it was always beam me up or I'm I'm ready to beam or energize uh, mm-hmm. or Mr. Scott you know beam me but but he never actually said beam me up Scott that's hilarious so here's here's another one of the tweets that will be going out into space it says last time you were here you forgot Nicki Minaj and Lady Gaga behind mm-hmm. they're ready for pickup that's funny um, and uh, <laughs> I like this one here's one that says Hello to the universe. We have cats, cheeseburgers, and much pie. (laughs) (laughs) And and here's here's one more. We want to meet you. Shall we have a beer? Yeah, we've got good beer on this planet. (laughs) Yeah. I just looked at some of the latest. There's a guy named Ben. His his thing is Ben is so cool. He wrote, the Chasing UFOs team team are a bunch of potty mouths not finding anything, but as long as Aaron Ryder keeps wearing skinny jeans, I'm in. <laughs> That's great. That one isn't oriented towards the ETs, but it's going to space. I think he made the deadline. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, other people uh, put little videos uh, to go along with uh, their tweets. Uh, I know that uh, Stephen Colbert of the Colbert Report put his own video together, oh. as did uh, Joe Buck. And Tim McCarver, the the Fox News sportscasters, oh, put a little geez. video. And and of course, my favorite is um, the reigning Miss Universe. <laughs> you know, words cannot possibly describe her video where she says hello to the space creatures and introduces herself as the current Miss Universe, in which she had to beat out so many other contestants and. It was seen by over like a billion people on planet wow. Earth, which which proves that she is the most beautiful woman in the universe. And she asks the alien creatures if they have somebody that they would like to compete against her. And and she ends her video by saying, um, if you're here to attack us, please don't hurt my face. Yeah, awkward <laughs> moment, that's for sure. Uh you know, it's a great idea if you're going to have if you're going to send a video to space, why not send uh, you know, arguably she's got the title the the most beautiful woman on the planet. But you don't have to have her talk. You could just have her walk around in her bikini or something. Um <laughs> and I think maybe next time that they'll reconsider cuz that was a little awkward. Uh don't hurt my face. I mm. I know, but you got to love it because and she actually, I, I think she did it um, not knowing how silly it was. <laughs> yeah. I think she was just trying to make a joke, but it just, uh, something lost in translation there. I, I <laughs> It's what I'm counting it up to. 
So we'll see what happens. You know, the, the signal will go out in August, and of course we won't hear anything more about it because, well, why would we if it's yeah. going to take a couple of hundred years to get to where it's going? Yeah. You know, you and I, in 200 years from now, we'll be, we'll be doing our radio shows um, from another time and space. Well, and that's what uh, I know some of the big arguments are, is that, you know, uh, why listening to radio signals like, like SETI does might not, why it's arguably whether that arguable whether that's the best route. And I remember even reading some of the CIA documents from the 60s when uh, they were discussing this sort of thing, um, the best way to do it. And they were talking about how, some of the more advanced technologies that we're just theoretically discussing are probably better ways of communication. Uh, and But the radio signals, you know, it takes so long that that's probably not a, a, a way that they'd be communicating. Uh, but And the degradation and the signal and all of these issues in that it, it's possibly not the best technology to be uh, listening to. Right, right, and 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 again, uh, the other part of the of the equation here is so many people have been saying that ever since we started projecting radio waves off of planet Earth, those waves have been traveling into deep space, mm-hmm. and it's possible that another technology may have intercepted some of these things. But but again, that would that would suppose that they w- would be using the same kind of equipment that that we use. Uh, I always have a problem with things like that. It's, it's yeah. like we, we we tend to think that because we do something or we use certain kinds of technology that everybody else in the universe must be using the same technology as we are. Right. This, this whole thing with all these videos that have been appearing lately on the Internet, and, and, and not only that, for as long as people have been taking videos and regular still pictures of strange things in the sky, especially at night, the question that I have had now for a long time is, we see all these videos, all these photographs of these things that are brightly lit, they have lights all around the perimeter, they have different kinds of flashing lights, etc. And the question is, why would UFOs, if UFOs are somebody else's spacecraft that has a technology that has to be far superior to anything we have because of the characteristics of what people have reported about UFOs, why do they need navigational lights? What is with that? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, one of the reasons might be that they're doing it for our benefit. If so those are navigational lights at all... Uh... They could be just an effect of the technology. Um, I mean, it could be other things as well, I would think. Um, it could be that they don't even see light the same way we do, and they don't see right. that right. light as light. Right, um, exactly. But why Why do they even need anything that has illumination properties? I mean, we put lights onto our cars, our planes and trains, and bicycles, and, you know, on helmets, uh, so that people can see us coming, and so that we don't bump into each other. Fine, that works for us. But 
do UFOs, do people maybe from another planet or other planets, do they need the same kind of system so that they can avoid bumping into each other? God, I wouldn't think so, Alejandro. Yeah, but we don't know that that is what that light is for. It could be a byproduct of something else. Um, look at it, our examples. We use, like, let's say, a fire to warm. You don't always, the light isn't necessarily what you need. It's right. the warmth, but a light is a byproduct of that. I mean, it it doesn't necessarily mean that the lights are uh, something they're attempting to emit. And like you said, it's also, if they are lighting up, it could be for our benefit. Yeah. Um, you know, which you're again, like, look at me, look at me. I, I know. It's like it, it raises another question. A lot of these objects, Seem, they seem to want to be seen by humans. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's like they're not really in a big hurry to get to get away. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, um, so it, it's like there are so many questions, not enough answers. Yeah. And and I'm I'm glad that there are serious people out there, serious researchers who are looking into it, and physicists who are really starting to consider that maybe some of these UFOs don't have to be coming from other planets in other galactic systems. If if they're coming from spaces in uh, different dimensional spaces or realities that might be even closer to us, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of different thoughts coming out about that now, and uh, I, I just hope that within my lifetime, within your lifetime, that we get to see some of these things. Yeah, let's um, hope so. Yeah, I mean it would be uh, it would be amazing. Mm-hmm. When you brought up the SETI and about how you know people. Uh, presume that their technologies would be similar to yours those things are always funny to me and and you know i'm a big fan of seti don't get me wrong but one of the results of and i know you had mentioned it they had a big conference this last weekend and in their conference one of the things that they discussed were metals how they believe that for an extraterrestrial civilization to have uh, developed, there are certain things that these guys would have needed, such as hands, uh, something to manipulate uh, materials right. with fingers and things, and they would need metal because you can't develop technologies without metal. Those are the kind of things that, you, you like you said, that are a little frustrating. Those are such big assumptions, it seems to me. Um, we don't know that you need those things to develop intelligence or or technology that that's true although um just to be there's no uh metals in our brain and our brains are an extreme technology right um but just to, to act as devil's advocate for a second about that um to my knowledge every report of Encounters that people have claimed to have had with what they say are alien beings, going back in history over generations. I, I mean, even going back to the days of the Bible, when biblical passages told about strange craft coming out of the skies and creatures getting out of the craft and mingling with the humans. In in almost every case, the creatures have been described as having a head, a torso, two legs, and two arms, with fingers, with toes, mm-hmm. with two eyes. 
Now, there have been differences. People have reported different kinds of creatures, some tall, some small, uh, different colors, uh, some with like three fingers, some with five fingers. But still, there does seem to be this humanoid appearance. Now, I mean, that's fine. But, you know, many scientists, especially the, the SETI scientists, will, will argue that if there are other life forms, intelligent life forms out there in the universe, they couldn't possibly look like humans. They couldn't be humanoid because based on the makeup of their planet and their, their own uh, civilization and, and the materials that brought forth their planet and sun, um, they would have to look different from us. And, you know, so maybe, maybe there are planets that have giant worms. Um, can the giant worms build spaceships? I don't know. Maybe maybe there are planets that just have intelligent flowers. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but maybe Star Trek is correct. They, you know, they went on a mission to seek out uh, and investigate other forms of life. And didn't it seem odd that all those other forms of life were all humanoid? Mm-hmm. So and every very- planet had an attractive woman <laughs> of some color, green or purple, for Kirk to um, yeah. fall in love with, have a romantic encounter with. I mean, there wasn't enough Romulan ale in the universe to satisfy that man. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, you know, occasionally they would go someplace, uh, like on a planet, where they discovered a creature called the Horta, which was this this blob-like creature that that uh, could you know could dig its way through through tunnels and could raise uh, its own little horta babies and the babies looked like giant cylinders. Um, so so yeah, there, there probably is lots of weird, strange life out there. But but there are also probably I'd like to think there are probably enough humanoids out there that have created the technology and have built the machines, some of the machines, that people are reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, whether they're, whether they're using their fingers or whether they're just using the power of their minds, their highly advanced minds to bring the materials together, you know, lift up the blocks like people claim happened with the creation of the pyramids. Uh, I don't know how this was done. All I'm saying is, is... Since I'm not a debunker, I'm not going to automatically say that people are lying about what they've seen. Uh, that would not be right. Uh, sure, it's, it's difficult to prove these stories, but it doesn't mean that people are making up every single story that we hear about. Mm-hmm. That, that, I think, would be impossible, to have so many tens of thousands of people from all around the world throughout history are they all lying? Are they all making stories up? Are they all hallucinating? Boy, I, I can't imagine that would be true. Especially, yeah, some of these incredible stories from these very credible people. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we, you know, you get to the point where it's like diminishing returns. How much longer are we going to keep ridiculing people or claiming that, that they're hallucinating or they're making stuff up or they're... they're creating bad photos from Photoshop. How much longer are the skeptics and the debunkers going to continue to do that until we actually find some real answers? And, and I'll tell you this also, Alejandro, I don't, I don't just put the blame on the skeptics 
or the debunkers or the the governments of the world. I put a lot of this blame on the visitors themselves. It's like if you're here, if you're visiting us, show yourselves. But if that's not why you're here, if, if you have a different agenda, then then don't show yourselves, but don't tease us. Because obviously you know that we're seeing you and we're photographing you. Um, and if you don't mind that, then fine. But, but I mean, it's, it, it's really tough. In 1968, the, the Air Force Academy had a textbook called Introductory Space Science. And they had a chapter called Unidentified Flying Objects. That chapter was only in that book for about a year before they eliminated it from the book. But it was a real chapter and a very lengthy chapter in which Air Force Academy cadets could read about what the military felt about UFOs, flying saucers at the time in 1968. And among the things that the cadets were told in that chapter, that the Air Force enjoyed the possibility that some of these UFO stories could be uh, the result of Earth being visited by three or four groups of aliens, possibly at different stages of development. And also in the chapter, it, it had a whole section called Why No Contact? And they tell the cadets, so they told the cadets in this chapter, when you go to a zoo, you don't go there and contact the animals. You know, so any extraterrestrial that could be so far ahead of us technologically and psychologically might not care about us at all and may have other reasons for visiting planet Earth and would prefer to not mingle with us. Mm -hmm. Just one thought. And, and again, it's not my thought. This is what they were telling the cadets. Right. That was one of many possibilities. It's like, why is there no formal contact? Well, maybe because they don't consider us worth contacting. Mm -hmm. Boy, I'll give you that. Yeah. It's, you know. So. Yeah, and I know what's interesting is, you know, there wasn't much publicity on it, but there was a guy who was blogging about it who would send me the links to his blog uh, who went to a SETI conference in Europe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, unlike the SETI conferences here, in this European one, there were several speakers who were professors at different universities talking about how they think we may already be being visited yep. and how uh, they they had a couple of theories. Uh, one of them, you know, they talked about that one a lot. And they yep. talked about um, the one, you know, kind of Stan Friedman talks about it a lot, that we're probably... Um, being kind of, uh, you know, kept at arms. They're containing us and keeping keeping a watch on us so we don't go screw up the rest of the environment around us, but uh, kind of keeping us contained and, and watching us. Yeah, and, you know, to, to what end, people will say. Well, we don't know what end. If, if we are being visited, we can't possibly know what their agenda is. We, we just can't. P people have said throughout the years, throughout the centuries, well, they must be the gods from outer space. Well, you know what? Anybody who is a few, a few hundred years ahead of us technologically, 
let's say we'll give them a thousand years, ten thousand years ahead of us, because there are so many possible civilizations out there. Just because they could be more advanced technologically than we are, doesn't mean they know anything more about how all this began. You know, the big question, where did we mm-hmm. all come from? They may not know the answer to that any more than we do. But people automatically assume, well, if they're coming from out of space, they must be the gods. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. I never have. But again, that whole chariots of the gods thing, people back in the days of the Bible, when they were seeing and reporting and writing about strange things that came out of the sky, well, they, that's all that they knew. They, they didn't have the technology to understand that this is something called technology. All that they knew was, here are things coming from the sky with strange creatures. They must be gods because we can't do what they can do. That's how this works. I say to people, keep it simple. There's nothing mystical or magical or supernatural about any of this. We're, we're part of a big, as Stan Friedman likes to say, it's a big galactic neighborhood, and there are many galactic neighborhoods around the universe. We already know that. So let's, um, you know, let's, let's have a yard sale with everybody out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or like Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is going to look like magic. Of course. Absolutely. You take Bushmen from you know, the, the Kalahari Desert, you know, or, you know, who've never been around people who who have technology, and you visit them and you show them something like a, like a cigarette lighter or a camera or whatever, and it's magic. It's like, oh, my, who are these people who have these wonderful, mysterious things? All we have are spears. It reminds me of the scene in uh, Back to the Future where uh, Marty puts the headphones on his dad and, and wears that... Uh that outfit and blares the mu- the rock music. Oh yeah. And he's, wow. Yeah, he and and he, and, of... and he pretends he's Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I know. So, yeah, it, it's all magical. You know, one of the things though that we could do as humans to take advantage of this uh these questions is to stage an alien invasion to help the economy. <laughs> I think you wrote something about this recently. I I did, I did. This so is this guy serious? You think? I mean, I've seen the no. stories and this Paul Krugman talk about this. Why does he keep talking about this? Is he just trying to be silly? No, he he was trying to make a point. He he, he won the Nobel Peace Prize or the Nobel Prize in economics, uh, and, and Paul Krugman, and he uh, he's a professor at Princeton. He has a column for the New York Times. And, and for over a year, he's, he's been talking about the idea where he, he says that if, if the United States, um, that, that, that the United States could benefit economically, we could get out of all of our money problems, if only we started pouring money and doing immense spending into something which would create jobs, uh, and that would help the economy. And so he basically said, what we really need is we need to get scientists to say that they've figured out that there's an alien invasion on the way and we need to bring everybody together to start building alien or anti-alien defense. We need to build more roads and we need to build more bridges and anti-defense, you know, systems. 
Um, and, and he's even said that, that even a fake war of the world's scare would help the economy. And some people believe that he's right, that, that, um, that this could help. But he never actually seriously said, well, I think we should do this. Well, because nobody's actually saying that there's an alien invasion on the way. Uh, although some people are, but, but, and I keep getting emails from people who are claiming that there are spaceships that are, are starting to, to, to form um, <laughs> their stance out beyond the, our planets. Uh, I get a, a lot of stuff about this. Hmm. Uh, so maybe there is going to be an alien invasion. Um, but, you know, the Earthlings are not the only game in town. Um, and and so we, we really should start thinking about how we're part of a galactic neighborhood of, of people out there who maybe aren't coming here to eat us or to kill us because wouldn't they have done that already? And, but, and I mean, why does he keep talking about this? Because as an economist, he believes, you know, that, that there should be ways of helping the national economy, helping the United States to get out of debt. And apparently, historically, one way to do that is for the United States to start spending a lot of money to actually create jobs. Well, if, if people were told that there were going to be jobs created that would help our planet to ward off an alien invasion, well, then the economy gets put back together. Mm-hmm. So he's basically saying that would be one way of doing it. Uh, I'm not really saying it's going to happen, but from an economic point of view, that's what we need, something like that. So he just kind of threw it out there and said, we need a possible alien invasion of Earth. So, and, yeah, so he's just kind of being silly, I guess. I mean, Oh, yeah. And he, yeah. It, it, every, everywhere that he appeared on, on, on CNN last year, um, he basically just said, um, to get us out of our economic doldrums, uh, we have to prepare for an alien invasion. Uh, what, what he does is he, he talks about how the Great Depression – um, was successfully ended when the government started spending a lot of money back mm. in the days of the World Wars. Right. Uh, he says that, you know, so we, we have to kind of replicate that somehow and get the government to start spending a lot of money. It'd probably uh, be a little more constructive if he just stuck to something perhaps that would be feasible <laughs> than what's funny, though, of course, it does harken. There's a conspiracy theorist who believe that... Uh, you know, there are, is going to be a, a, an alien invasion feigned for uh, purposes of developing defense. But uh funny thing is, is that by this Krugman guy saying this stuff, uh, I don't know if I, you know, people would be less likely to fake something if this guy is over here saying that's what we should do. Yeah, but he but he's also gone on record by actually saying that it's a fake threat. He, mm-hmm. he has never said that this is going he to happen. He believes it's really happening, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's been very open and said, mm-hmm. yeah, I've created this fake threat scenario as an example of how the United States could clear all of its economic problems up. Yeah. But, you know, he, um, he even, uh, last year, he told CNN, if I remember, um, that there used to be a Twilight Zone episode where scientists faked an alien threat in order to achieve world peace. Well, mm. you know, now he now he says, well, this time we need to do a fake uh, alien threat in order to get some 
economic stimulus happening for the country. It's just so weird. What a weird guy. I know, but but everybody was was listening, and you know, I it guess it was a good marketing play. Yeah, it it was, and he you know he has won a Nobel Prize in mm-hmm. economics, so a lot of people, of course, think that you know when someone like him stands up and wants to talk, you know, we better listen. But mm-hmm. but again, he never actually said that he really believed that there was an alien invasion and that we should really, or that we should we should really have some scientists make the claim. He has always said that it was just like a fantasy idea that he made up. Right. You've made that very, very clear. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it is what it is. I got a good story out of it. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, before we're we're running out of time, but I definitely want to talk about at least the Baltic Sea uh, story, because as far as I know, you were the first one to write about how they, when they went there, they actually found it to be at first... See, and these guys are are these treasure hunters are kind of goofy. They're changing their stories all the time, but especially at the time they first posted, they said it looked like a giant mushroom. They they did, and and that was directly from their website. And mm-hmm. the, the day that we're talking about, it's a it's a group called uh, the Ocean Explorer, and it's basically it's it's these these two guys who are treasure hunters, okay. And um, they, a year ago, uh, last June, almost exactly, well, a little more than a year ago, they were um, they were preparing to leave a certain area of the Baltic Sea when side-scan sonar that they were using caught images of something lying on the bottom of the Baltic Sea. And, and people started claiming, well, it looks like the Millennium Falcon spaceship from the Star Wars movies. And, and it, it all quickly went viral. And, and it took them more than a year to, to raise more funds so they could go back to the Baltic Sea with, with more, more divers, more deep-sea divers, uh, better equipment, better cameras to get a closer look at this thing. And, and so when they, uh, when they got back there a few weeks ago, um, they instantly released pictures and videos, and it was just all close-up things that they didn't really have anything from very far away they they were like right on top of the thing and you couldn't really see a lot except the, a lot of the edges of this object were smooth they were rounded they said it was almost like sitting up it was sitting on top of some kind of a pillar as if it was growing out of the ocean floor and that it looked a lot like a mushroom as you can all imagine what a mushroom would look like and they found uh like circles of rocks on this object, which they said reminded them of like a fireplace that's made out of rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found a mysterious hole in this thing. And, uh, and, then, and then even in the last week or two, another story has come out in which one of the divers was claiming that as they got closer to the object from the surface, they, uh, their, their cameras, the power, suddenly went out and they couldn't actually film certain things until they got further away. Well, that, that hasn't really been substantiated. And now some people are out there claiming that the whole thing was a scam. And, and in fact, I read, a, I read a, a story the other day where some people uncovered the fact that one of the, the two heads of the Ocean Explorer, um, that he's a, it was actually an, uh, an actor. And they found his website with his picture on the website when he was doing acting. <laughs> mm. See, and here's so, why I, I know, and I don't trust these... 
since the beginning, they've been using these phrases like UFO and, and Millennium Falcon, and they they laugh about it and they say, oh, you know, they they really glom onto what the media is talking about. So at first, you know, you see an interview and they're laughing. Ha ha, you know, we were just joking when we said that. And then once the media really talks about it, they get more serious about that aspect. And they just don't seem to, they change their stories. They seem to really be um, hamming up the media. And I guess another aspect that frustrated me with this story, too, was that there was an interview where they said there were exercises from the military, Russian, and U.S. nearby. And then this evolved into, and really it was the fault of the bloggers and stuff in this field saying, oh, the military's blockading the area. No, that never happened, nor did they say that. Right, but but th- at least there was a partial truth to that, Alejandro. That it, it was a coincidence that on the day... But that's not a blockade. No, no, not at all. We, uh, the coincidence was that, that when these guys left Stockholm to go back to the area to where the object was, and I think they, they left on June 1st. It was a coincidence that in other areas of the Baltic Sea, the United States, Russia, and something like 15 other countries were, were conducting military exercises. And this is something that they have done every year at about the same time, the beginning of June. They've done this for like the last 20 or 25 years. And so this had nothing to do with these guys going back. Well, to that's what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 And there was, like you said, there was no blockade. And I, I, I was, I've been saying to people, look, if these guys were dumb enough a year ago to say that they've, they've come upon this object on the bottom of the Baltic Sea, but they're not going to be able to get back to it for another year, do you think that if the United States or Russia, or other countries who have enough resources and manpower, if they actually thought there was something going on here, you think within the last year they wouldn't have gone back there and found it themselves and brought it up and made it go away? I I think so. Yeah, and if they did want to blockade these guys, they would have very easily been able to do so. That's right. And, And the other thing was, if they had gone there and they took it away, then what would have happened was these guys would have gone back there and they would have gone down to the right coordinates and they would have said, wait a minute, where's the object that we saw here a year ago? It must be a conspiracy. Someone must have taken it away. Mm-hmm. And then and then all the conspiracy theorists would have come out, but then skeptics might have said, well, you guys just went down to the wrong location. Mm-hmm. And it would have just blown itself. It would have imploded. The whole thing would have imploded on them. Right. So at this point where it stands, they took samples of the object and I understand that the samples are being analyzed in Stockholm. And I've, I've been checking the website every day to get any updates, and so far there haven't been. And so mm. we'll see. We'll just see what we'll see about the Baltic UFO. And also, in my story, I think I, I might have been one of the first people to say that isn't it about time that everybody agrees we should refer to this object as a USO, not a UFO. USO as in unidentified submerged object, because as far as we know, nobody knows if this object was ever in the air and was ever flying. Mm-hmm. So why are we calling it a UFO? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, 
I'll take on everybody. Get them. <laughs> that's right. Get them. So and that's interesting, though. The, the, their website didn't say anything about this electronics thing, huh? That's right. That's right. And that's that's what bothers me. Mm-hmm. That uh, The stories started coming out about the electronic things, and I kept going to the website. Nothing. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's a little odd. If they've been reporting everything else on the website, why not this? Right. What's up with this? So, yeah, you know, it, it's fishy considering it's from the ocean. <laughs> that's cute. But, but, yeah, it's a USO, everybody. Get used to it. Yeah. Live with it. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I, I came under a lot of heat uh, because people thought, commenters to my story, People thought that I was saying that this was, in fact, a giant mushroom. And I wasn't saying that. I was saying that the, the researchers said that it looked like a mushroom. It was mushroom-shaped. But nobody was saying that this was a gigantic portobello mushroom. <laughs> Which you know? sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, let's bring in some some tomato sauce and pour it over the thing. I love a good portobello. I I love a good portobello from the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Well, uh, we are pretty much out of time, so a lot of interesting stories as usual. Uh, you've got probably plans on because you're always a busy guy. Some new exciting stories, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm I'm actually working on a piece. Um, I'm following up some information about a little story that recently came out about how one of the uh, one of the Soviet I should say Soviet one of the Russian cosmonauts who I believe was on the space station. A um, bunch of media outlets picked this up last week. I'm I'm not sure if if you had it on your site or not, but he was saying that apparently the uh, that the United Nations in conjunction with China has come up with some kind of protocol instructions for astronauts or cosmonauts on how to deal with possible first contact with extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. Now, I read this, and, and, I, and I kept finding many different stories that talked about this, but not a single story out there actually had the instructions. And I thought that was pretty odd, mm-hmm. because if the United Nations has such a protocol policy, why haven't they released that? Is that something you'd want to hide from the public? I would think that to boost public interest in the United Nations, they would want people to know that, hey, if there is first contact, you folks might like to know how we would like to approach it. Mm-hmm. That would be a, a great morale and, and PR situation for the UN, but nothing. So I put in a couple of calls. I'm waiting for some, some people to come back to me and say, Cool. Is there or is there not a policy for first contact? Yeah, and, and of course there was that story a year or so ago where where uh, it was rumored that this woman, and she had said something to the effect, right. I think, a right. science representative who said, yep. I think she was just joking around saying, I think I, since I'm science, I would probably be the one tasked to talk with the aliens if they wanted to talk to the UN, but uh, something like that. Yeah, yes, and, and the stories came out claiming that she was the new um, Earth ambassador to outer space, mm-hmm. and and she quickly went went on the air and, and, and made public statements saying, "No, I never said that. There is no such thing. There is no such policy." And it's entirely possible, Alejandro, that that this this cosmonaut may have been thinking about that 
and and may have just kind of like you say gotten it lost in translation mm-hmm. that maybe he was just remembering the story from over a year ago when people were saying that there was a special office set up at the UN for first contact. I'm sure that that's all this is going to turn out to be, mm-hmm. but I'd like to at least follow it to its conclusion. Yeah, and if they want to open a position like that, hopefully they put it up on Monster and uh, you and I can apply for it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, or or if they say it's going to cost too much money to put this kind of an office together, then I'll say you and I should go on to Kickstarter and we'll raise the funds. Yeah, that's right. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll bet we'll get the money we want, too. Yep. Just like I'm going to get the money for the conference on my Kickstarter. Well, I'm sure you will, because you're doing a really good thing out there. Thanks, brother. You bet. All right. Well, I'm going to be excited to see you at the conference, and I'll be excited to uh, stay in contact with you on a regular basis as usual. You bet, Alejandro. We'll, we'll do a buffet together in Las Vegas. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for being on the show again. Thank you so much. Thank you to Mr. Lee's. He's always a lot of fun and always up to something interesting and unique. How exciting it would be to write for uh, Huffington Post and all this stuff. Anyway, it's been another wonderful show. I would like to thank you all for joining me. Uh, Join me next week as we have another fascinating and wonderful guest. And um, once again, I need to put a link for these guys on on the site, but uh, thanks to uh, Two Earth Minutes, who created our closed music. Adios, muchachos. Talk to you next week, people.